Okay, everybody, oh, welcome to the Mind Hunter Companion. Uh, I'm uh, Doug. My co host is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. And we are on season one, episode four of Mind Hunter. Uh, any any global thoughts before we dive in? No, it's it's the one thought I had while while watching recently was how uh, this is the second time I've watched through this season. Right, it's been I watched it uh, when it first came out, and now it's been like a year delay. And um, I I I think it's better the second time actually because it's it it it's such a patiently uh developed rolled out um story and uh style of of uh editing and writing that uh, it rewards um it's not immediate gratification you know what i mean it's a great show but it's it's not a it's a slow burn it's a slow burn it's not like you know kid uh kid friendly so to speak you know, I, the only thing I'll say is I think that this is this is kind of a weak episode. Like, for me, this was a little bit of work compared to some of the prior episodes, and and the episode that follows this, I th- which is essentially a continuation of almost all the the plot threads of this story, right? Um, is much better. Well, you have a resolution in the next episode with the their uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania uh, odyssey, little odyssey. Well, and there, I guess something about the way that it's just, it's portrayed or it's carried out. I don't know. There's two different directors directors for episode four and five. Episode four is directed by Ostef Kapadia and episode five is directed by Tobias Lindholm. And maybe it, maybe it has something to do with that. I don't know. But this episode just felt, it dragged for me a little bit. Maybe I, don't, maybe I was tired when I watched it. Hmm. Um, should we get into it? Yeah. So, so uh, what happens to start the uh, the usual um, ADT alarm man, BTK killer, Dennis uh, Rader, foreshadowing. Um, uh, there's a brief, I think, scene with that, and then basically it goes right, to he's in someone's house doing an alarm inspection. By the way, that, what a great job! Yeah, uh, that's the one where he's quietly effect. kind of wandering around, right? Right, and the woman doesn't realize that he's still in the house. And yeah. the, the woman is supposed to be, you know, she's she's shown to be taking things so unseriously that she asks if she could just buy the ADT sign for the yard and not the actual alarm from the very person that she desperately needs the alarm to protect her from. <laughs> right. Well, everybody asks that. It's just that the guy they're asking is usually not a serial killer. I like the I like these Dennis Raider vignettes. Uh, for two reasons. One is because they're sort of short and ominous, and they, and I always come back to Kemper saying to Holden that there's a lot more like me, right? Yeah. And this is this is to show, you know, how right Kemper is, and how where they're doing all their work, Raider's doing his work, right? And they know have no knowledge of each other, but Raider is out there doing his thing. Yeah. Um, and then we head to Virginia, right? To right. meet to meet uh, Monty Rissell. Another interview for them, right? Who's a real person? Um, who uh, was a serial killer and a serial rapist who raped and murdered five women in the, a short period of time in the seventies? Yeah, and it's a fairly uh, long scene where they're they're interviewing him in in detail, and it shows how they. 
their method for trying to get him to talk and he wants soda. And, and they're recording, which is a big step forward. Now they are recording the interviews, which is essentially Wendy's suggestion to them. Because Wendy, yeah. Wendy said in an earlier episode that Holden's notes were inadequate. So the re- interviews have to be recorded and transcribed. Yeah. Um, and this is a very different interview than Kemper. Like Monty Rissell could not be more different than Ed Kemper. Yeah. They, they have to sort of draw him out a little bit, whereas Kemper's just uh, starts from the get-go at 200%. And, and Tench is, uh, Bill Tench is very hostile to Russell. Like, yeah. he, he, there's no attempt to sort of charm him. There's no talk of Wamba. Like, ten, Tench really kind of gets into it with him. Yeah, I think Tench still isn't fully, he still has mixed feelings. You know, he's convinced, as we were saying last time, he's convinced that there's, there's utility, but he's not, uh, he's still not super fond of the idea. Well, it makes you wonder too, maybe all of this makes him uncomfortable just fundamentally. Like, like maybe he feels like talking to these guys is validating too much. You know, maybe he's looking down on them. Like this does elevate them a little bit. Like if they, if you're admitting that they have something they can teach you, it, it, it elevates their stature some, and maybe Bill's uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I, they're exactly. I mean, I traditionally, right. They've treated them purely as some kind of, terrible deviant and their job is to catch them not understand them right uh, uh, right or shepherd puts it as their job is to execute them right um and he talks about monty talks about how his first kill was a random woman like a sneeze he describes it right right and that was the prostitute wasn't it his first uh, was a the, the first girl he killed was a prostitute, I think. Yeah, out in the woods, and it's messy, and he describes it, and they they spend effort trying to get him to uh, trying to ask him what what changed, you know, why did why did he why did he kill her? What was different? Yeah, and and she, you know, he didn't realize that she was a prostitute when he approached her, and uh, sort of ended up doing something and sure she responded in a way that he didn't expect. She responds essentially kind of positively to his assault, which is maybe a survival technique on her part. Probably rounds her right. Her, that woman, by the way, in real name in real life was Aura Gabor. who was mm-hmm. only 26. Um, although it's interesting all the way Rissell is, you know, he's, he's portrayed as, is uh, in a very negative way. Um, but they do acknowledge that he did let one girl go. Yeah. Right. Because uh, she said that there was, I think what she said that her father had cancer or something. That's right. Right. Um, but anyway, when the scene ends with Bill um, and Holden leaving the prison and it's kind of tense, like they're not really getting along. Like they're kind of arguing in the car about like the point of these interviews and what there is to get out of them. Well, I think, you know, Bill lets his frustration out and he ends up kind of, shutting down he basically insults um monty russell and it, it kind of shuts him down and then i think that that uh, holden's annoyed a little bit and they're you know the two of them really get along well so bill says you know i i get it you don't have to say anything and then that's they don't even have to air what the problem is yeah but uh but you could but there's you know they're annoyed with each other yeah 
right? They they need each other and they have to work well together. And just sometimes they're they're having trouble, right? And then the the argument goes straight into the car crash scene, right? So yeah. Bill is driving, Holden's in the front passenger seat, and Bill is clearly shown to be in the wrong. Like he is the cause of the accident. He takes a turn without looking, um, and they get T-boned by a guy, I believe, in a pinto. Yeah, <laughs> good thing they didn't rear end him. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and then Bill sort of like lashes out at the guy and flashes his badge. But the guy correctly points out that Bill is in the wrong. And I think the implication, too, is that if Bill hadn't been sort of pissed off and arguing with Holden, maybe the crash wouldn't have happened. He was driving angry. Yeah, I think he was distracted because they were having an argument. By the way, we should tell our um, younger <laughs> Our younger uh, audience, what uh, what it means to say that uh, hitting the pinto in the rear, pintos back in the, the <laughs> 70s uh, would explode occasionally when they were rear-ended. Yeah, they were sort of famous for that. Right? Wasn't that Nader's book, Unsafe yeah. Any Speed, talking about the pinto? I think it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, although I do like the government car that they end up wrecking. It looks pretty cool, actually. You know, it's also it's interesting to see is there's no airbags, right? And they're not even wearing shoulder restraints. It's unclear if they're even wearing lap belts. Yeah, they had lap belts at that point, but they they're probably not wearing shoulder belts. They probably didn't have it. Yeah, no, but they're shown to sort of like when they have the car accident, they're shown to be thrown hard over to their left side. Right. And uh, I think uh, I think it, it hits on Holden's side, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, because Bill makes the left turn and the car goes right into him. Um, and then we sort of cut to an interesting scene where they are in a bar, right? You know, their car is wrecked. You could imagine it's been towed. And they're in this bar eating a steak dinner at the bar. And Holden notices that Bill's drinking a fair bit. Yeah. He pours a, he has a, a big drink board for himself and Bill sort of looks at us. So Holden looks at it a little concerned. Um, and then we sort of get the sense that uh, there might be troubles with uh, Holden and his girlfriend, right? She doesn't sort of jump to come get them, right? He yeah. tells her there's a car accident. He calls her from the payphone, and And, uh, you know, she kind of says she'll get there when she gets there. She's busy. And Holden right. also, you know, right after the accident, Holden is clearly a little bit shook up, um, maybe a little concussed. I mean, uh, Bill's a little worried about him because he asked him a few times, you sure you're okay? Because he looks dazed. I mean, he really got hit. He really got jostled. Yeah. Cars were heavier then. <laughs> <laughs> Cars were made of more metal, less yeah. plastic. It looks violent too. You know, that that scene is actually good. And the car accident, it comes out of nowhere and it's jarring, you know, like you, you, they kind of allude to it. And I'll talk about this in the episode five podcast, but they kind of, you, they kind of allude to it the way that the camera is done in that scene. Like there's a sense of foreboding in that scene. Yeah. Um, so like when the accident comes, like I remember the very first time I watched this, uh, and this is my second time through the series as well. I remember thinking something's going to happen, but I didn't think it was a car accident. But the way that the, the scenes were filmed with the way that the sort of the blurry, blurry background passes out the window, like I was waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the end, in the end, uh, Bill kind of convinces Holden that it's okay if their girl, if his girlfriend comes and gets them the next day. Right. Um, and then, 
we also kind of get a sense and we start to hear about uh, Bill's family, right? And he acknowledges for the first time openly that he and his wife have adopted a boy who's having developmental troubles and they're not, they're not coping well with it and the boy is not doing well. Right. He's probably autistic, but at this point, it's not commonly understood the way it is now. Exactly. And, and the treatment options are slim to none. Right. Um, so they make it back to Quantico and, uh, and uh, we, we meet again with Wendy Carr. Right, who's who's starting to listen to the tapes, and she proves right away that she is more sophisticated uh, in terms of her analysis. Like when she actually hears them talk with the killers, right? She's able to spin off a lot more ideas than they are because you know, a she's an academic, and b she's you know she's more she's more she has more acumen for this sort of thing. She's uh, she's a little more objective, right? She's not there in the room with them, but very very quickly. Uh, she sort of proves her worth and her mettle by by hearing a lot of things that maybe they missed. Yeah. Um, she's been thinking about this stuff for a long time just by virtue of that alone and has more sophisticated understanding of psychopathology. You know, it's interesting, like, the way that she's played uh, the Wendy Carr character. Like, you know, she's she's really you know, dry and distant and cold. And we don't yet know why that is. I mean, we find out soon enough, but, you know, she's portrayed as, uh, you know, very icy, you know, she's not mean, but she's, you know, she's not very chummy to these guys, right. Who she's kind of thrown in with now that they're all in the basement. Correct. So it's sort of like the, the dynamic between the three of them is sort of interesting. And Holden is clearly, interested in her not in a romantic way but he's sort of curious about her as a person whereas bill is not really like bill kind of views her as a sort of co-worker and a colleague and like you don't get the sense that you know bill's interested in much else beyond what she can provide them at this point correct um and she makes the point i believe it's wendy makes the point that you know the the men that they're interviewing they don't process events normally right and their their interpretation of events around them may lead them to some of their activities right yeah um so then the next day or the next vignette right now it's uh it's time to go back and meet monty Russell a second time and on the way holden goes to pick up bill and we see bill's wife and son and we 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 see the difficulty that they're having in the way that the boy won't interact with him or won't really speak or give him a hug and this all happens on display in front of holden and by extension the audience and we you know, you know, Bill is portrayed as a sort of like a tough customer, man's man, kind of John Wayne guy. And and now we don't just hear, but we really see that like Bill's home life is bad. Right. right. Like he's working all day doing this doing doing this stuff with these killers and it's dirty and it's it's not glamorous and he's getting shit from it, shit from his boss for it, and then he comes home to a giant struggle and and the way that they have his wife the wife looks sort of pained and drawn you know yeah and you know what's interesting about that scene too i think it's immediately before that where wendy carr is explaining to them specifically um what's wrong with a guy like monty russell what what goes wrong you know where uh normal expectations for responses um for emotional responses from other people are are totally abnormal and um and you know she's really 
pinpoints and highlights the differences between somebody who's that abnormal and a normal person. And then the, you, you see Bill, you know, wants to hug his son and his son isn't capable of responding. So you sort of see a variant of that in normal life um, right in front of you. Right. And the implication too is that like if these problems aren't fixed in childhood, you know, adulthood is not going to go well, what, regardless of what your underlying troubles are. Yeah. So then uh, we head back for our second meeting with uh, Monty Rissell. They bring him a six pack of Big Red. Actually, when he asked for Big Red the first time, I thought it was, he meant the gum, the cinnamon gum, but it's actually a soda. And they bring him a soda, a, a six pack of soda is kind of like a, a thank you or a way to sort of get his good graces. And then I thought that it's really important is he says, he says, nobody ever wanted me. You know, like that may be Rissell's biggest, biggest statement, right? That gives them some sort of clue as to maybe what, what made Rissell tick or made him do what he did, right? He felt like no one cared. Right. And, you know, they've been discussing the fact that how do you know what's, where he's being manipulative because I mean, most of these people are, are psychopaths who've learned to manipulate others because they don't really have much concern for the way other people feel. They lack any kind of normal empathy feelings. So does he, you know, what does it mean when he says that they just, they, they get into that with Wendy and in the end, you know, they sort of decide that, even though he he may be using that as a way to achieve an end result by 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 uh, sympathy, in other words, that he's learned that that sometimes it's useful to have sympathy from other people, um, even though he doesn't really understand what sympathy is, it still may be valid because his own experiences he can view as painful in some ways. Um, you know, maybe that they, they don't have anxiety about certain things that normal people do, but they still have uh, preferences, right? So they still have feelings of, they can still have, have negative feelings, positive feelings. Um, you know, there's still reward and punishment for them. Um, just not in normal emotional attachments. Mm. You know, when, when Rissell says nobody ever wanted me, it reminded me of Tim McVeigh a little bit. Now, Tim McVeigh wasn't a serial killer. He was a mass murderer, right? He's the guy who carried out the Oklahoma City bombing. But, you know, I read uh, American Terrorist, which is sort of like the definitive tome on Tim McVeigh. It's a sort of a combination of Tim McVeigh's biography plus the story of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I remember when I was reading it, I was about two-thirds of the way through it, and I said to I said to my wife, you know, if Tim McVeigh had a girlfriend, the bombing would have never happened. <laughs> like, there was just no one for him. Like, if, if there was one person that he felt he could go to and be with and cared about him, the Oklahoma City bombing wouldn't happen. And then at the end of the book, I think it's in the afterword, it's right at the end of the book, uh, I think it's the author says that he concluded that if Tim McVeigh had a girlfriend, the bombing wouldn't happen. So it was sort <laughs> of interesting. Like, it's the same idea, you know, like, like, like if you feel like you're all alone and no one cares, you know, like the constraints on your behavior kind of go away, right? Right. Right. You could do anything because what's the, what's the point or what's the difference? But anyway, 
And then we kind of, uh, we shift gears right to Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is where the story, I think, kind of actually starts to get interesting. Like the first half of this episode for me is, it's pretty slowly paced. And then all of a sudden, well, we are, we're out in Altoona and the, the cops have a murder case of a girl named uh, Beverly, uh, a young, uh, very, very pretty blonde woman uh, who has found uh, murdered and mutilated at a at a trash dump. Uh, she's actually based on Betty Jean Shade. Um, you know, in the Mind Hunter book and John Douglas's book, this whole episode that in this in that in the series takes up about an episode and a half is literally covered in about two pages of the book. Like it's done very very quickly in the book and with with not a lot of analysis or detail. But it's really expanded here uh, in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they befriend a local cop and, uh, the local cop is it's supposed to be a very small town. And the local cop is kind of portrayed as knowing everybody. And the, the cop is very fixated on the idea that this is a drifter. Right. And, and they have to, they have to work very hard to talk this cop out of the idea that this is a drifter. Like, that this is, you know, they, they are basically saying to him, like, focus on Beverly, right? Look at the people in town, right? Who, who did this, right? Marco Kasich is the name of the local cop, his character. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting because it, it kind of shows that, you know, that they do need to be out there because the cops, you know, just thinking about, you know, drifters passing through towns, right? Uh, like the, like Rambo, right? That's the wrong way to think about it, right? And 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 the idea to focus on Beverly, right, is is the answer. Yeah, they also need to be out there because it helps them learn, um, in you know, in a couple of ways. One is that they're refining their understanding and modeling of what what these serial killers, uh, sequence killers, that they're as they're still calling them, uh, what they're like. Um, and it gives them a chance to test and um, probe for their own weaknesses in the in their model, sort of of, of commonalities in their development, common behaviors, et cetera. Uh, you know, ways to catch them. And it also allows them to see what they're going to need to to do uh, when they're interfacing with with police out there who are actively working on on the crimes and how those interactions are going to change as they as their profiling becomes more sophisticated so you know they it definitely has as utility they don't really explicitly talk about that i think most of the time you know they're trying to spend more time working on the interviews and they're only allowed to do you know 20 percent of their time as per their recent agreement um you know, with, uh, with the FBI. Right. No, for sure. Um, the, you know, then I think there's this sort of, there's like about a wasted 10 minutes of this episode. And it is true in the real case that initial suspicions focused on the guy who found, uh, the girl's body. And, and here they meet Mr. Mora who found her body, uh, and they interview his wife. And it turns out that he was kind of attracted to her, 
And it's like it's like a dead ten minutes. And on the one hand, maybe it's to show that they don't figure stuff out right away, and they've got to go down blind alleys. But it's kind of a dead ten minutes that they almost could have cut out. I think, like because mm-hmm. because once you know once we kind of get pointed in the right direction, you know, Mister Moore and Missus Moore aren't really seen again, and they're not that interesting to begin with. So I don't know. I wonder if that was too much of a slavish attention to the detail of the real case, but it didn't work for me in the show. I don't know. I think it's hard to uh, combine a traditional kind of cop or detective show where you have to show them running down a bunch of leads because you can't, you don't have any sort of satisfaction of discovery without establishing the scene and giving, uh, making you participate in the detective process, right? You can't just have them interview one guy they're going to catch and then they catch him. That's not Just a detective. Facts, right. I mean, you can't go, you have to show a bunch of possibilities in a, in a detective show. Right. And, um, or, or any detective story written or filmed. And, you know, they, it's hard to combine this long, the development story and their other interactions with the FBI, their interactions with Wendy Carr, their, um, their, the progress in their understanding of the pathology uh, and the interviews with these with these episodic um, detective stories. So they're trying to find this balance, and sometimes you know it's a little unwieldy. I mean, did you find this episode slow? I keep coming back to it because this is the 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 first one that I just felt like I was struggling to get through. Whereas usually I feel like I just sort of race through them. And this one, I was like pausing it, checking my email, you know, like I just needed, I don't know, it wasn't grabbing me. Maybe it was just something about it. I liked, uh, overall, I, I thought it was good. I I agree with you about, you know, what I just said. It's a little jarring to kind of go back um, to change the style of the episode that you're watching so much because they're part of the time, it's it's a detective story in Pennsylvania where they're running around and part of the time, it's them working on their what they sort of consider their main job and it that makes it seem longer i think switching back and forth so i see that i really like their interaction uh when they go back and they talk to uh dr carr about the specifics i think that's a great scene and i think the stuff with bill tench um them in the bar is pretty good I love the way Bill is always shown eating and drinking and smoking. <laughs> yeah. He's like a bull, you know, like he's yeah. just like thinking about the next meal, like the next, the next hunk of sirloin he can, he yep. can get down. It's and a cigarette. <laughs> Although it is the seventies, you know, I mean like everybody yeah. smoked in the seventies, Yeah, but you know, after they meet Mr. And Mrs. Uh, Moran, um, you know, they kind of realize these aren't the people who, you know, this is the wrong alley. And then their attention refocuses back on the fiance. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the episode ends with uh, Holden and Debbie essentially going out uh, to dinner with Wendy. Right. Yeah. They, they, they meet at a, some sort of restaurant uh, and uh, they have, you know, you could tell Holden is eager to kind of show her off to Debbie uh, yeah. But, you know, she's chilly, like even in a social situation outside of work, like she's very chilly yeah. to everybody. 
And then they, they get they get funding, don't they? Isn't that the very yeah, end? Yeah, that's, that's the very end. So after the sort of awkward dinner scene, and it's, you know, it's unclear like what, what Debbie really thinks about uh, Wendy after all of this, after hearing about her for so long. Um, then they get called in to see Shepard, all three of them, Wendy, Bill, and Holden. And uh, they have won uh, $385,000 in two grants that Shepard actually applied for for them. Sort of also making Shepard's character more complicated, right? Like, you yeah. know, in, in recent memory, he was yelling and screaming at them. And now he's arranging them uh, money. And part of it, part of it, the, the victory comes from the fact that uh, Wendy kind yeah. of unprofessionally blabbed about their activities in her academic circles. No, it, she gets money. the credit. Like when he says, like, let me take a crack at it earlier on because she knows how to raise money and she knows who to talk to. So Wendy actually has the credit for this. Like she's the one that got him the money. Right. So, but Shepard says he applied for the grant. He does. But he says, like, they'd already heard about it and they called to inform me that they were expecting <laughs> it and that, that I'm going to get funded. So it's all Wendy. It's all Wendy. But it's and, funny because, you know, Shepard's kind of stuck. Like he's sort of very hesitantly endorsed them. And now they've got a ton of money. And let me tell you, three hundred eighty five thousand dollars in the 70s. Right. Yeah. Is is got to be like a million and a half today. Yeah. For two and a half people. Right. And all right. All of a sudden they have huge resources to spend down there in the basement. And the episode ends with them all sort of looking at each other with raised eyebrows, you know, like, oh, look at that. Yeah, that doesn't suck. Yeah, but it's kind of a but, you know, it's a it's a good ending, but it's not a very dramatic ending in terms of like it's just talk like nothing actually happens. I kind of like it, though, like that, because it's 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 just keeps the, you know, the series it makes you where it's a series, you know, that it ends right at just this point with a, uh, an interesting emotional tone that there's no cliffhanger. No, there's no cliffhanger at all. Although, although Beverly's Beverly Jean, uh, her, her murder is still unsolved. Like, like the events in Altoona are still unfolding in front of us when the episode ends. Yeah. But you, you know, you kind of forget about them for a little bit because you come back and you go out on the date with Wendy and Holden and Debbie and and then yeah, you had the meeting with uh, Shepard and the, and the episode ends without really referencing the events in Altoona again. So we're, it's yeah. left to the following show for us to uh, you know, find out the resolution there. I don't know. You, I think you definitely like this one more than I did. Yeah, I think uh, for I me, think like you're the right. high point of this episode is the car accident because hmm. the car accident it sort of it fits in dramatically right as they walk out of the Monty Russell interview, and it's it's visually striking, and the car accident leads to a lot of uh, character development, both for Holden uh, with Debbie and Bill with his family. So we get to sort of see and hear a lot there. So yeah. But I don't know. It's funny because I feel like the next episode, which picks up these events directly, is much, much better done. But we'll talk about that in the episode five cast. Yep. Um, other thoughts? Anything else there? Again, no disrespect to uh, uh, Mr. Capati, our director, but uh, I don't know. Not my favorite. I, I, I liked it, except for maybe the. You're right. There's probably about 10 minutes of. Um, um, spinning their wheels, so to speak, uh, in, in Pennsylvania when they start interviewing people. But I understand why he wants to do that as it's sort of a typical detective story. 
And the guy who plays the local cop, Okasik, I forget his name, but he does a very good job. Like he's not supposed to be stupid, but he's supposed to be out of his depth. But he works hard in the case. Like I like the way that he's sort of like a work a day average Joe, like the way they portray him. He comes back to them all the time and he's been doing something else or he's thought about something else or he's gotten another lead. Um he he's you can tell he's he's basically spending twenty four seven working on it. Yeah, but well, we'll see what biggest, happens. It's the biggest case to hit Altoona, right? Yeah, and he's extreme. And it's not just that he's um, looking, he's a glory hound. I mean, he's truly dis- incredibly disturbed by it. And, affected. Uh, and, and he even goes to church with some of the involved people, right? Yeah. So it, it hits very close to home. But we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we'll talk about uh, this more in episode five. Yeah, so we'll All right, see. Let's wrap the there. All right, we'll see you guys uh, for episode five uh, next time. Oh, oh, wait, say, say our email. Uh, say our email, because I can't remember it again. <laughs> it's uh, mindhunter.companion at gmail.com. Yeah, and obviously, uh, we love uh, we love five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. So if you're enjoying the show, please uh, just take a minute and give us uh, give us a positive review. All right, we'll see you guys for episode five. <laughs>